If the powerful have failed, then they must be removed. Old bloodlines mean nothing when chaos is on the horizon. Welcome to the History of Egypt podcast and Total War Pharaoh. Today, we introduce one of the game's most prominent characters, the warlord Ramesses, historically known as King Ramesses III. Ramesses III is a famous name in the annals of the Egyptian pharaohs. A warrior and a builder, he fulfilled many of the tenets that the Egyptian king was supposed to uphold. And yet, his reign was far from smooth sailing. Constant warfare and pressure on the borders meant that Ramesses III was more active on the battlefield than many of his contemporaries. Today, we get to meet him. As Total War Pharaoh begins, Ramesses is in the Sinai. His father, Seth Nacht, is in the west, overseeing departments along the coast of Libya. In the south, King Merneptah holds sway over northern Egypt and its dominions. Tausret and Seti II are a husband and wife duo controlling Middle Egypt. And far to the south, Amen Messi, the viceroy of Kush, oversees the rich gold-bearing lands of Nubia. Officially, Egypt is unified under the majesty of King Merneptah, but the seeds of discord are already sown, and civil conflict will soon erupt. Historically, the collapse of the 19th Egyptian dynasty is a shadowy and complicated affair. We have only a few records that testify to the political and military events, and many of these records are missing a lot of context, so it is easy to misinterpret particular events and the role of certain individuals. And yet, one thing we do know for certain. As the royal household of Dynasty 19 fell into infighting, a man named Seth Nacht took charge of the situation and seized power for himself. Seth Nacht, meaning the god Seth is strong or victorious, was the first ruler of what we call Dynasty 20. It is his rebellion and seizure of power that marks the end of one historical period and the start of the next. Of course, this is more of a modern convenience. The ancient Egyptians did not view their history in terms of dynasties, but they certainly recognised periods of chaos and disunity, and the need for a strong, guiding principle to control that disorder. Sethnacht used that idea to justify his actions. Historically, Sethnacht may have been the one to establish unity over the two lands, after he managed to seize the crown for himself. But we don't know much about Sethnacht, and when it comes to this period, it is really the son of Sethnacht that has earned enduring fame. Let us introduce the Prince Ramesses, later known as the King Ramesses III. Ramesses III was the son of Sethnacht. The young boy was probably born around the time that King Ramesses II died. It is possible that Sethnacht named his child after the late pharaoh, as a mark of honour, or perhaps a wish for future greatness. This is quite a common feature of the time period. Parents would give their children names that referenced the great pharaoh, perhaps hoping to enjoy some of his reflected glory. In the case of Ramesses III, it seems to have worked quite well. 
If he was born at the end of Rameses II's reign, then the young boy Rameses would have grown up during the reign of Merneptah. This pharaoh ruled for approximately 13 years, and when he died, young Rameses would have been an early teenager, perhaps slightly older. So his coming of age, his maturity, would have borne witness to the civil wars and conflict that afflicted the end of the 19th dynasty. He would have seen the rebellion of Amun Messi, the restoration of Seti II, the kingship of the queen Tausret, and the rise of the Chancellor Bai. These events are shadowy, complicated, and we will explore them in the next few episodes. Suffice to say, Prince Ramesses probably had a rather dramatic upbringing. He lived in interesting times. We don't know what role, if any, Ramesses played in these events. He was the son of Seth Nacht, and he may have been witness to some of these calamities. But whether he was directly involved, manoeuvring through the political field, or waging war personally, that we can only speculate. What we do know is how Seth Nacht and his descendants described this chaotic period, and justified their family's rise to power. First, to justify his actions, Seth Nacht commissioned a text in the far south of Egypt. It said, quote, The great assembly of the gods is pleased with Seth Nacht's plans. The land had been in confusion, but the great god stretched out his arm and selected Seth Nacht from among the millions of commoners. He dismissed hundreds of thousands before him. End quote. In the 1970s, filmmakers working on Superman auditioned over 200 actors before they finally chose Christopher Reeve. Apparently, the great gods did something similar. They surveyed hundreds of thousands among the great mass of humanity before they finally found their own Superman, Seth Nacht. Then, they chose their hero to go forth and bring back truth and justice, or Ma'at, to the land of the Nile Valley. The text continues, quote, Now his person, Seth Nacht, was like his father, Seth, who flexed his arms to rid Egypt of those who had led it astray. Fear of Seth Nacht has seized the hearts of enemies before him. They flee like sparrows with a falcon chasing them. They even abandoned their silver and gold, which they had given to foreigners to bring reinforcements. The enemy's plans failed. They were futile, as every god and goddess performed wonders for Seth Nacht and proclaimed a slaughter against his enemies. By year two, the second month of Shemu, day ten, there were no more enemies to his person in any land. They came to inform Seth Nacht, Let your heart be happy, O lord of this land. Those things that the gods foretold have come to pass, and your foes no longer exist. End quote. There are some interesting references in this passage. Apparently, the rulers of Egypt, whoever they were, had tried to gather reinforcements from among the foreign lands. But these mercenaries, these regiments of renown, came to nothing, as the forces of Sethnacht scattered them utterly, allowing him to overthrow his foes and claim the kingship of Egypt. Another text commissioned about 30 years after the death of Sethnacht, described the situation in even more grandiose detail. This text is called the Great Papyrus Harris. It is now in the British Museum, 
and it includes a section describing these events. The papyrus goes as follows, quote, The land had been banished. Every man was a law unto himself. One killed his neighbour, whether high or low ranking, and each joined with his companion in plundering goods. They treated the gods as they did men, and no offerings were made in the temples. But then the gods themselves desired peace in order to put the land in its proper state. And so they established their son, who came forth from their flesh, as the ruler of every land upon their great throne. His name was Seth Nat, beloved of Amun. He was Kepri and Seth when he was enraged. He set the entire land in order where it had previously been rebellious. He killed the rebels who were in the land of Egypt. He cleansed the great throne, being the ruler of the two lands. End quote. There are some details in this text that I have cut out, but we'll return to them in a future episode, because they relate specifically to another of the faction leaders in Total War Pharaoh, the Canaanite ravager, a man named Irsu. So we'll come back to this text. Anyway, the great Papyrus Harris describes a time of chaos and disorder, when civil conflict and rapacity was rife. But Seth Nacht, the superman, came along to set everything right, and his accession to the throne, ordained by the gods, brought peace, order, and justice back to the world. Of course, Egyptologists try to be careful with texts like these. They are designed to glorify and strengthen the legitimacy of the person commissioning them. So we cannot take Seth Nart exactly at his word. But the broad gist of his description may match with what actually happened. Perhaps the rulers of Egypt, kings like Seti II and Tausaret, had tried to gather mercenaries from foreign lands. This was a common practice in earlier generations, nothing shameful about it. But perhaps these armies that they had summoned failed to crush the rebellion of Seth Nacht, and when he finally triumphed, he declared that these foreigners were an imposition upon Egypt, marauding invaders whom he scattered like birds. It all serves to glorify the new power, the new ruling family, and to legitimize his claim to authority. But sometimes even the most grandiose texts are built on a kernel of truth. The collapse of the 19th dynasty does seem to have involved infighting between different branches of the family. We are not sure how widespread that fighting was, whether it was limited to assassinations in the palaces, or outright conflict on the banks of the Nile. But Sethnacht had his reasons for describing it as a full-on war. And naturally, with the blessings of the gods, he emerged victorious. Subsequently, Sethnacht only held power as a pharaoh for three, maybe four years. The chronology here is a little bit uncertain. There are some interesting records, but we don't have any definitive evidence on when exactly he died. He left a couple of monuments, including a royal tomb, that I'll discuss another time. But alas, his short reign means that Sethnacht did not leave much of a legacy in terms of architectural, artistic, or historical information. His son, on the other hand, Following Seth Nark's death, his eldest boy, Prince Ramesses, claimed the throne for himself. He took power as King Ramesses III, Usur Ma'ad Ra Meri Amun, 
This name translates as Powerful is the Ma'at, or Order, of Ra, beloved of Amun. The name references two of Egypt's major deities, Amun and Ra, and it ensures that the new pharaoh gains their blessings and their power. The name Usur Ma'at Ra Meri Amun is also nearly identical to Ramesses' famous predecessor. The king Ramesses II, Ramesses the Great, had called himself Usur Ma'at Ra Setep En Ra, that is, powerful is the Ma'at of Ra, chosen by Ra. So Ramesses III deliberately looked to his famous predecessor when he chose his royal identity. He changed one part of it to make himself distinct, but anybody who saw or heard this name would understand whom he was referencing. This king claimed to be Ramesses the Great, come for a second time. Of course, the big question was, would Ramesses II justify that claim? Spoiler alert, yes, he would. For some scholars, Ramesses III earns the title of the last great pharaoh, the last significant ruler to control the house of pharaonic Egypt. We can debate that another time, but there is no disputing, Ramesses III was a significant monarch, and his achievements are well recorded today. Ramesses III would reign for over 30 years, and in that time he would achieve much. But for our purposes, the most significant events of Ramesses' time on the throne were the numerous wars in which he was involved. Every pharaoh, to some degree, aspired to be a war leader. Going back to the very start of their history, the image of a successful king was that of a victorious warrior. And for nearly 2,000 years since, the various monarchs had expanded their control over neighbouring lands. They had led expeditions to seize captives, plunder distant communities, and, of course, destroy anyone who stood in their way. Of course it was not all battle, the pharaohs were also skilled diplomats and active traders with their neighbouring kingdoms. But the image of the warrior, the strong leader who conquers, that lay at the heart of their royal institutions. Ramesses III was another king in that mould, and his reign would be remarkably eventful in terms of conflict and battle. Following Ramesses' accession, the first major event that afflicted his kingdom came in year 5. This is a time when Ramesses III marched his armies west. He went to face a coalition of tribes coming out of Libya. The Libyans, referred to by various names, had attacked Egypt before, most recently in the early days of Merneptah. Now, they tried again, and like Merneptah before him, Ramesses III went forth into battle, and he claimed great victories. Hieroglyphic texts recorded on Ramesses' temples describe these campaigns and battles. I won't read all of them, they're quite extensive, but a small selection will give us the gist and the idea of Ramesses at war. In year 5, Ramesses described events as follows. Quote, the land of the Chemehu came, united in one place, together with the Libu, the Seped, and the Meshwesh, aka the tribes of Libya. They had levied from the lands of the Buriru. Their warriors relied upon their plan, coming with confident hearts. The enemy announced, we will advance ourselves, we will achieve. Their hearts were full of harm. But 
their plan was smashed and turned aside by the will of the god. End quote. This had happened before. A group of tribes had coalesced under a single leader or plan and attempted to move into the fertile lands of the Egyptian Delta and Nile Valley. But whenever this happened, the Egyptians gathered their forces and marched to meet the Libyans in battle. Ramesses III followed this example. The king described the battle like this. Quote, His person, the pharaoh, went forth amongst the enemies, like a flame that is scattered through the brush. The Libyans were threshed like sheaves of grain. They were reduced to ashes and cast down prostrate in their own blood. Their overthrow was heavy and without limit. Their mass, the enemy horde, was gathered in one place for their slaughter, and they were made into pyramids on their own soil. Every survivor was carried back to Egypt, a captive. The severed hands and the phalluses were beyond numbering. These were presented as prisoners beneath the window of the king's appearance. The chiefs of the foreign countries, maybe diplomats, were gathered to behold the Libyans' ill fortune. End quote. There are a few interesting details here. First of all, Ramesses mentions a military practice, which we get hints of in the archaeological record. Following the outcome of the battle, Ramesses describes how the enemy survivors were brought back to Egypt as captives, and from the dead, the severed hands and phalluses were gathered together. This is a practice that we hear about in Egyptian art and sometimes in archaeology. Apparently, following a battle, Egyptian warriors would cut off one of the hands or the penis of their foe. They would do this to accurately count the number of enemies whom they had slaughtered and beaten. And when the various appendages were gathered, they would be presented before the pharaoh and the gods. Now that may sound slightly unbelievable, but surprisingly, archaeologists have found gatherings of hands buried in ancient settlements. Especially at times of conflict, there are traces of these sorts of practices. And on the walls of his temple, Ramesses showed the counting in action. In an elaborate scene just beside the gate, Ramesses appears as a massive figure. He reaches out his hand while royal officials present news of the great victory. Behind those officials, a pair of army officers are dumping out severed hands and penises. The appendages are piled up, and behind them, groups of scribes are counting each one. Following this grisly display, long lines of prisoners, the Libyans themselves, come forth before the pharaoh. Egyptian troops push them forward into the king's presence, and they raise axes or bows to threaten and cajole them. One scene that I particularly like even shows prisoners carrying chariots upon their shoulders. A pair of Libyan captives appear at the right of this scene, and they reach up, holding an entire chariot on their back. Of course, that is artistic license rather than strict reality, but it conveys the basic image. The enemies had been defeated, and all of their equipment, and some of their physical parts, had been gathered for presentation. It is a brutal scene, but that is the outcome of ancient warfare. This was not the only occasion in which Ramesses fought the Libyans. About six years after his first campaign, he faced the Libyans in battle again. Again, hieroglyphic texts proclaim the victory of Ramesses, and an extended description of his conquest. The texts say, quote, 
the young lord, the hero to whom victory was promised, even when he was in the womb, along with strength, great and exalted like the war gods. On this lord it was commanded to trample down the lands, to lay them low, and to subdue them for Egypt. The war gods, Montu and Seth, are with him in every battle, and the Canaanites, Anat and Astarte, are a shield for him. It is Amun that determines his words. The king does not turn back. He wields the sword of Egypt over the enemies. No land has survived to bring themselves against Egypt. In order to annihilate them, the god caused them to be dragged away. The king is a lion, strong and valiant. As for the Libyans, previously, the king of Egypt had come among them before he was even seen. He fell upon the Libyans, and they were reduced to ashes. Their settlements were ruined and destroyed. Their descendants were non-existent. It is the command of this king to slay everyone who ever violates Egypt. The Libyans had said, we will settle in Egypt, and they kept penetrating the frontiers of the land, but death surrounded them upon their roads. They looked up to the sky, to the sun, gesturing with their hands before it. Behind them, in the past, they had achieved many things, but now only a moment remained before them. Then they approached, and they found his majesty, the king, like a divine falcon, raging when he has seen his prey, and there is no rest or release before him. Amun-Ra is the king's protection, and the god's hand is with him to avert the enemy's faces, to destroy them. His majesty set out in valour, his arm was powerful, and his heart was confident in his father, the lord of the gods. His majesty was concealed and hidden, ready to ambush and take captives. His voice roared and bellowed like a griffin against the enemy. The Libyans were taught a lesson for a million generations. They were fallen on their faces, their land was taken away, their boasting was ended, and they could not flourish. The king expelled them with his force, and slaughtered with the blade. The roads were blocked and cut off before them, and the land itself was a storm wind behind them, taking away their people. Their weapons fell from their hands, their hearts knew no more strength. The great fire blast of Sakmet, the war goddess, took hold in their hearts, so that their bones burned up within their bodies. The fire was terrible in pursuit of them, while the land of Egypt was carefree and rejoicing at seeing the king's feet of valour. Everyone who escaped ran to their settlements, as if the Egyptian troops were right behind them. Woe to the Meshwesh, woe to the land of the Libyans. He who bound their heads was king over Egypt and every foreign land. They bowed down to him, as if to Seth himself. Their faces were downcast, and they were flattened. End quote. The text goes on and on and on like this. It is dramatic in the very best way, but it also conveys the essence of Egyptian victory. The pharaoh is the son of the gods, and his victory is their victory. None can stand against him. He rages against every foreign land, and he crushes them utterly. It is elaborate, grandiose, deeply religious, and also wonderfully dramatic. Ramesses III continued the legacy of the most ancient rulers. He was the victorious warrior who smote all enemies. Artistic scenes carved on the walls of temples show these victories in action. We see Ramesses preparing to mount his chariot, 
while his horses are cared for by a groom. Soldiers gather ahead of the king, trumpeteers play on their instruments, and the royal bodyguard bows as the pharaoh ascends his war cart. In the next scenes, we find the Egyptian army itself marching into battle. Ranks of infantry march. They carry large oblong shields, and they clutch spears, wooden clubs, or wicked bronze swords, the kopesh. At the front, ranks of archers raise their composite bows to loose arrows upon the Libyan foe. Naturally, the enemy is utterly overwhelmed by the Egyptian troops. They tumble about in confusion, while Egyptian soldiers grab them by the hair and raise their weapons, preparing to strike them dead. On top of this scene, we find Ramesses III himself binding up prisoners with ropes. He has dismounted his chariot, and he steps on the bodies of fallen Libyans. One of his feet is on the face of his enemy, another is upon their legs, as he drags their arms behind them and ties them up with a string. The king gathers prisoners in his glorious victory. Naturally, no one can stand against him. Another scene, which I absolutely love, shows the aftermath of this battle. We find the Egyptian courtiers, the high-ranking generals and commanders, gathering together to praise the pharaoh on his magnificent victory. Again, government officials gather up severed hands and penises, which they dump in front of the pharaoh. These grisly trophies provide a physical record of the enemy's defeat and slaughter. Watching all of this is Ramesses III himself, but the king does not stand in glorious pomp and splendour. Instead, he is perched on the rim of his chariot. As if he is sitting on the edge of the war cart, he leans on the rim while clutching the reins of his horses, and he reaches out with one hand to receive the offerings from his victorious troops. It's a really cool image, we don't often see the pharaohs doing this, but the king has apparently perched himself up on his war cart so that he can see them better. The best analogy I can think of is that final scene in Independence Day, where Bill Pullman gets up on the back of a flatbed truck to give his grandiose jingoistic speech. This is basically the same thing more than 3,000 years ago. Of course, every victory is achieved by human arms and also by divine intervention. The will of the gods determines who triumphs upon the battlefield. If Ramesses III, or any king, had fallen away from the deities, he could not conquer in strength. And so, a common feature of Egyptian royal art is that following a battle or a campaign, the king comes back to Egypt. He drags long lines of prisoners, and he presents them to the gods themselves. In one scene, the king stands before the shrine of Amun-Ra, the king of the gods. Beside him stands the great mother, Mut, who puts one arm around Amun's shoulders and raises the other to bless the pharaoh Ramesses. The gods are within their shrine, which is adorned with golden images, so this is taking place within the great temples of the land. Behind Seti, we see long trains of Libyan prisoners, the king has gathered his captives together, and he now presents them as an offering to the gods. It is a classic image that many pharaohs used. The point is, all victory comes from the great deities of creation. So anybody who wishes to rule Egypt must pay proper attention to these deities, building shrines and temples to their honour, in order to guarantee their favour. There would be other wars and great battles in the time of Ramesses. 
but the most significant one is that of the Sea Peoples. This took place sometime in the first decade of his reign, and it was a titanic struggle on the edges of Egypt itself and their empire in Canaan. The Sea People's invasion is a dramatic event, one that really requires its own episode to cover, but suffice to say, historically, it was Ramesses III and his followers that faced the Sea People's invasion. Again, the battles and campaigns are displayed on the walls of his temple. Here, we get an incredibly detailed and extensive record of the conflict. At the start, we even see Ramesses gathering his troops together, and preparing their equipment so that they can go forth in conquest. In one scene, we find Ramesses standing on a balcony, possibly in his palace or at the temple itself. Before him, high-ranking officials and generals are gathered to give praise, while below him, ranks of soldiers are marching to gather their equipment from the waiting Egyptian scribes. Officers, commanders, and bureaucrats are assembling the equipment and weapons. We see shields, helmets, spears, bows, swords, and axes. The king's elite troops come forth to gather their uniforms and prepare to fight on the pharaoh's behalf. Amazingly, we even get a speech from Ramesses himself. Hieroglyphs adorning this scene record Ramesses' proclamation to his soldiers as they gather. It says, quote, the king himself speaks to the courtiers, the officials, and all of the army and chariot officers. The king says, Have the weapons issued. Dispatch the battalions to do battle with the rebellious foreign lands. Those who do not know Egypt. Do this in the power of my father, Amun-Ra. The king speaks to the overseers of the army, the battalion commanders, and the commanders of the archers. He says, all elite troops and recruits, every brave who has come to his majesty's attention, let them pass in review before the pharaoh to receive their weapons. End quote. The reference to braves is a nice detail. This is a unit of the royal bodyguard that we hear about occasionally during their campaigns. Wonderfully, you yourself can recruit the braves of the king, should you take Ramesses to the very height of pharaonic power in total war pharaoh. These heavy infantry, armed with spear and shield, will be the core of your strong force. They will hold the line and pin the enemy down, so that the king and his chariots can sweep the foe away. We also hear about the overseers or commanders of the archers. Of course, the Egyptians are famous for their bowmen. Many times, their artistic scenes show bows at the very front of the line. They fire arrows over the heads and directly into the bodies of their foes. And should you take up the command of the Egyptians themselves, your royal archers will use their composite bows to great and devastating effect. It's not often that hieroglyph texts will reference individual groups and units of the army, so whenever details appear like that, it is a great feature of the overall scene. Ramesses, apparently, gathered his braves and his archers and many more together, and this force marched out to face the invading foe. What happened with the Sea Peoples, and how it all turned out? That is a story for another day. Historically, Ramesses III was an accomplished pharaoh, especially in the art of war. In his reign, Egypt faced multiple threats from foreign lands around them, 
and the king's army marched forth repeatedly to battle their enemies and defend the Nile Valley. In Total War Pharaoh, Ramesses is a strong figure. His followers are elite warriors, powerful and trained in the Sinai Desert. Your charioteers will race across the open plains, striking fear into their enemies and raining arrows upon them. Your magi warriors, whether armed with sword or axe, will strike down the enemy infantry and slaughter them mercilessly. To harass the enemy, you may deploy your chargers, armed with heavy clubs or maces, and ready to strike the vulnerable or unprotected flanks. And should you choose to employ them, you may even recruit bodyguards or raiders from the mysterious Sherden. The Sherden, or Shardana, are an interesting group, one that served multiple Egyptian pharaohs as bodyguards and elite troops. Of course, the Sherden are most famous as part of the larger Sea Peoples group, the mysterious migratory and invading forces that ravaged so many lands during the Late Bronze Age. If you should prove a strong pharaoh, you might employ these Sherden yourselves to defend Egypt against their countryfolk. If you do, you may follow in the path of Ramesses, who struck down all enemies that sought to violate Egypt.